Welcome to The Last Call. It's a conversation between two boozy hacks. My name's John Sweeney and I'm in London. Mike Weiss is in New York City. We're interested in the virus, high politics, low tricks, national insecurity, lies and spies. And every week we try to bring you a fascinating guest. This week we've been talking to former CIA officer Mark Polymeropoulos about Trump, about Russia, about North Korea, and where spooky fact meets fiction. We're talking about Bond, James Bond. You know, Daniel Craig came to our headquarters, I think it was last year or the year before, and it was a huge hit. And he joked that he actually hadn't even been to MI6 headquarters yet. Um... (laughs) More of that in a moment. But first, Mike and I do battle. Whose country looks more fucked this week, Britain or the United States? I have to say, after the bleach man, inject bleach, says Donald Trump. I think the contest is over. I don't think there's any point in carrying on. What say you? I'm afraid for this week and this week only, I am waving the white flag of surrender. Uh, there is, we cannot compete with the level of madness coming out of Donald Trump's mouth. Is it going to damage him that? The only thing I, I can say is that, you know, if he steps away from these press conferences, which are essentially objective Biden campaign ads, um, Bleachgate will be forgotten, like everything else is forgotten, and it might actually benefit him in the long run. So, in other words, the, the gaff to end all gaffs will have convinced him that he doesn't need this, you know, spectacle arena for purposes of showboating and propagandizing. Leave it to Dr. Birks and Fauci. Let them crack on with managing the pandemic. And the less he says and the less he's seen, the better will be for his political fortunes in November. If indeed the election is going to take place in November. I mean, what if he what if he decides we need to postpone it um, because he frankly doesn't like the way he's doing in the polls? There, There are a lot of variables here. I still maintain that he's got a better shot than a lot of goggled eyed optimists would would suggest. Um, And the thing that worries me is there's not been that that sort of counterposition of who his his opponent is right biden is hunkered down in his basement issuing his virtual fireside broadcast but the two of them have not been on a stage together they've not been juxtaposed and yeah you and i john i mean this is this is no contest of who who we're going to vote for but the fact that after the president of the united states says maybe we should be ingesting disinfectant that new york city notice an uptick in people who were actually doing this, like swilling Clorox bleach or calling poison control, asking, is it all right if I do this? Suggests to me that, um, you know, we get the president we deserve. Let's put it that way. And uh, I, 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 as, as much as it pains me to say it, I think America fucking deserves Donald Trump right now. I, I, I'm a goggle-eyed optimist, and I disagree. You should know, um, listeners to the podcast who've joined us for the first time, that I put a 500 quid, which is uh, the biggest um, bet of my life, on Joe Biden 
to defeat uh, Trump. And Mike is forever raining on my optimism and being a pessimist. By the way, so we're all clear, although I, I want to see the end of Trump, I've met the guy three times and I don't like him at all. I can't vote for him because I'm British. But anyway, I want to introduce our guest who is, and this podcast is interested obviously in the virus and in politics, but also in lies and spies. And Mark Polymeropoulos served this for 26 years in the CIA before returning last June, before retiring last June. He worked in the field and at HQ covering the Middle East, Europe, Eurasia and counterterrorism. He's won the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, the Intelligence Commendation Medal and the Intelligence Medal of Merit. He likes baseball, which is a weird version of cricket. <laughs> True? True. <laughs> so, Mark, um, how are you rating um, how the great leaders of the world, I'm thinking of Putin and Trump and Xi and Boris, how are they doing in terms of the intelligence stakes? Well, well, yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic question. I just let me just get back to two quick things. First of all, you you, you spelled my name, you pronounced my name correctly, um, which is uh, which is quite a task. So uh, so immediately you get some high marks for that. And I always go back to to a story from back when I was in the Middle East and and I was serving a, a, in a country that that was uh, that was pretty hot. And the president's briefers actually called me. They were going down to the White House and they wanted my analysis. Um, this was George W. Bush. This is actually in 2006. And so I waited the rest of the day and into the night and I finally got a call back and I said, you know, hey, you know what? Happened? It's a pretty big deal. I said, you know, what did the president say? He said, well, they spent the whole time in the Oval trying to pronounce my last name. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so so you're one up on, uh, on W. So uh, so, uh, so there. And then the other quick thing I wanted to throw in there as you talked about the elections is, is not only did I work for 26 years at CIA before that, I was actually an intern on the Hill for Joe Biden. So my grand, you know, my, my claim to fame was, I think, probably picking up his laundry, um, but uh, uh, or his dry cleaning. Um, but uh, I didn't but know I, that for Joe Biden a long time ago. Yeah. And so and when, when he came back to the Middle East, where I was posted one time as, an, as a manager, when he was vice president, we kind of joked about that. And clearly he didn't and he should not have remembered me because I was pretty unremarkable. But uh, uh, you'd, think, though, you'd think, Mark, though, that uh, Greek surnames would be. Um, you know, people would be more familiar with them in the agency after the legendary Gust Avrakados. That's right. And of course, George Pennant as well. So not the same kind of last name, That's but right. I, I have a story on Pennant for later on. But no, I think, John, you asked me just about, you know, the role of intelligence now. And, and you know, it's, there's, I think there's, there's a couple things to, to focus on. One is, of course, you know, it's on the front page of every paper now this morning is that it looks like there was a, there was several presidential daily briefs, the PDBs I just mentioned that, that were written in from January on about uh, uh, about the spread of COVID, and so you know I would call this this is certainly was not an intelligence failure; it's more of a policy failure. Um, and then number two, you take a look at how you know, uh, and, and I and I look at I look at the the performance of President Trump in a little bit differently. I mean, of course, I want America, um, uh, and there's a there's a leadership factor for the world, but I want America to get healthy again, and and presidential leadership means a lot. But I also see how other you know how I, I look at things kind of with a half you know, glass, half full or darkly. And so I see other hostile intelligence organizations looking at, at our president and, uh, and the performance that, um, that he's showing. And it's, uh, it's uh, you know, you see someone who is a narcissist, um, who kind of has a complete lack of empathy, uh, you know, wildly distracted. And I think that, you know, a leadership analyst for the SVR, for example, or for 
the MOIS can, can write a pretty good brief for their leaders um, on how to kind of not only deal with, but manipulate uh, uh, our administration. So a lot, lot to digest there, but um, that's kind of the things I've been thinking about these days. Do they even have to, though, manipulate this administration? I mean, I'm, I saw a, um, a, a Russian diplomat, um, I use diplomat with inverted commas, um, posting on Facebook after, I, I think it was prior to Bleachgate, but just, you know, in the midst of the whole Trump press conference circus and, and the transformation of these, these daily um, parlays into a, a kind of, you know, campaign ad for 2020, saying, look, we don't have to do anything. <laughs> like, this right. is, this, you know, this guy is, is, is his own active measure at this point. Like, what, if, what if, you're, if you're sitting in Moscow right now, wondering of ways to cook up bits of disinformation or conspiracy theories, how are you going to better the guy who has the bully pulpit and commander in chief who's doing it on a daily hourly basis. Right. Right. So, so, you know, he's certainly the gift that keeps, keeps on giving. I mean, I always joke, uh, uh, Michael, when I've talked to you and others that, you know, there's a lot of people with probably a lot of awards, um, at SVR headquarters for everything that's, that's gone on over the last couple of years. But I think that, you know, there is a lot in terms of disinformation, you know, first of all, there's the whole China angle in terms of, you know, what, what they've been doing, um, in our country. But if you think about, from from the uh, from the Russian side, it's kind of ironic. I mean, it's it's we were all set up for an election. Uh, uh, well, we worked in some cases with with Bernie Sanders' success, but even with Biden, you know, you're gonna you're gonna see uh, uh, disinformation campaigns because it's just set up for uh, for this, in which you know the 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 left, the Democratic side, are going to be considered you know socialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because because at the end of the day, Biden's going to have to adopt some of I think Bernie Sanders' uh, you know. Uh, uh, policies for the for the platform in order to gain a supporter. So there's going to be that that narrative out there that that you're going to have kind of uh, uh, this battle between the, the right and then and then the socialists. Unless mm-hmm. this and the and I'm, I, you know, the, and the Russians are going to push this forward. And there's some, of course, some great irony there, considering the history of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, Though you can make a case that actually the Soviet Union um, stopped being in any sense uh, left wing around about 1924 and became actually in reality more and more fascistic but dressed up in the in the language of communism um i play around with this theme a bit in my uh, in my novel the useful idiot which mike famously hasn't read actually an awful lot of people haven't read but never mind now um a, a question it's away from Trump for a second, right. but I'm fascinated by it. I think uh, many, many people are. Is Kim Jong Un um, dead or alive? What do you think, Mark? So you know, uh, first of all, you know, I don't have access. Uh, you know, uh, I retired hey. last July, so so I, I don't know. And there's you know, there's the the kind of the the North Korean criminal. Krem, Mike, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. <laughs> criminal. criminal ah. Uh, the North Korean watchers, just like the old kind of uh, uh, Soviet watchers, you know, it's it, they're they're kind of their own breed, and so you know whether whether the train means something being spotted or a, or a two week break or trying to you know trying to escape COVID. Um, the, the bottom line on this is that a uh, in, and we have to be careful, I think, with what we wish for because a leadership transition in North Korea, um, which would could be would, which is messy on a good day. Um, you know, in terms of, of instability, refugees with the with the COVID pandemic is, is pretty scary uh, mm. to think about. And 
And so, you know, this is this it's 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 you know the world always kind of relishes stability, even with autocrats in power. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm a fan at all of the, the North Korean dictatorship, but um, but this 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 has the potential to be much more than you know this kind of weird, amusing uh, friendship between um, uh, uh, Trump and and, uh, uh, and and the North Korean leader. More so, it's it's just you know in terms of kind of serious uh, uh, instability and, and refugee flows, and with the pandemic, I mean, I think there's a lot to be worried about. Yeah, we're, so we haven't nobody's seen him uh, since April the 11th, and right. the significance is that the big, big, big day of North Korea in, in the North Korean calendar is April the 15th, which is the birthday of granddaddy uh, Kim Il-sung. And this is the first time ever that uh, Kim Jong-un has not been around for that very, very big anniversary. Right. So there are three theories uh, running at the moment. One is that he is dangerously ill or even dead, and there's a particular um, uh, nuance about this in that it, he had a he's morbidly obese, grossly overweight, and he had a heart operation that put a stent into his heart. And the North Korean surgeon was shaking, his hands were shaking so much that he killed him. That's one story. But the South Korean intelligence is saying they think he's still alive. Right. Um, but what's weird about him still being alive and fine, if that's the case, is why isn't he popping up? Because he's a dictator and dictators have to pop up pretty much every day to show that they're healthy and, right. and yeah, all not, that stuff. Not, not really. there, was, there was a period, you recall, a few years ago when Putin had disappeared for, I think it was a fortnight, and mm -hmm. this led to why, and, you know, Russia today is is more of an open society than, than certainly in the Soviet period, and, and absolutely compared with North Korea. But, there, you know, there, he just ha hadn't done that before, and that led to all kinds of wild speculation. Um, he had a, a Botox mishap. Uh, you know, he he was tending to his illegitimate daughter with his, his mistress, or, uh, you know, a, a, what is it, a, a rhythmic um, gymnast or whatever the hell she's called. Um, and I think now <laughs> the, the consensus was it was some kind of respiratory thing, but not lethal. But, you know, look, if you're, if you're a dictator of a... Of a uh, Orwellian state, you don't want to appear in public if you're a little worse for wear, if you're looking under the weather, you're looking kind of haggard and you want to be robust. So it could be he's recuperating from something and survived, but is not in any fit state to come before the cameras and they're just waiting. I mean, you know, what are the North Korean people going to do? <laughs> it's not like you can protest and say, we want to hear from, from our Supreme leader, um, you know, <laughs> if you're busy like scrounging for grass to eat for dinner at this point or staying out of fucking gulag uh, so i think I, I think you know time is on his side here if he's alive john i don't think he's under any uh pressure to appear before the Klieg lights yeah well, one um one theory um um puts me uh by a friend of mine who's been to uh, north korea twice and she says that maybe he he's just hiding from the virus Right. As if it's a kind of physical enemy. And I dismissed that when I first heard it. And then I thought, actually, that's crazy enough that he might actually be in hiding from the virus. Um, it's, well, we don't know. Mark, when you were in your old job, the CIA, did right. you, how did you wrestle with this stuff when you just didn't have enough information? Uh, did you, a, did yeah. you come clean? Right. So, so, so 
my so my experience of this, I'm going to put a little bit of a different spin on it, but it but it, it, it's very similar. So you know, most of my career was uh, centered around the Middle East and counterterrorism, and a lot of it had to do with kind of counterterrorist operations and trying to take off the battlefield senior leaders or, or high value targets, whether it's Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, um, uh, ISIS, etc. And so there's a lot of times where we would conduct an operation, whether that was you know in conjunction with the military um, uh, uh, or or, you know, with other means, and you're, you're kind of, you're waiting for the battle damage assessment. You're waiting, waiting to see if actually the high value target has been taken off, um, off the battlefield. And there's enormous pressure, you know, from, from any administration, you know, did we kill this individual or not? And, and I finally concluded after, after we, we made a lot of calls that were incorrect. In fact, that, you know, perhaps the intelligence suggested that we were successful and it turned out we were not. Um, airstrikes are diff- difficult things sometimes to, you know, to gather DNA and, and, and so really, you know, you know what you wait for? You wait for the funeral music to come on. You wait to see you wait to see an actual funeral in North Korea or in the old Soviet Union. You know, you wait to see the, the martial music coming on and, and the, the screens going black. So we'll find out one way or the other. But my experience is, you know, um, it, it's, it's you, you got to be you got to be right. And, uh, and, and a lot and there's a lot of pressure to get it right. So um, I, I, I tend to be cautious on, on these calls. First of all, I know nothing on North Korea. So. Um, but but it just but in general, when we're trying to determine the status of someone, especially in in closed societies, you know, if he's dead, he's dead. Um, and, uh, and and the, the you know, it, it'll come out in time, whether it's, you know, you know, it's going to be it, and it's, you know, you're looking for human reports from human assets on the ground. You're looking for sig- signals, intelligence. Certainly imagery can help. Again, if you see funerals, if you see things that that, you know, are kind of your part of your checklist. Um, and then ultimately there'll be an announcement. Um, and so, you know, when, when we tried to kill a terrorist target and, uh, uh, and we were, you know, we, we, even if we had 90% confidence, you know, we're going to know when they announce it. Who was the, um, can you give us an example of a, a high value target either in <laughs> or ISIS or, or hell, even Hezbollah that, um, that you took out and what, what, what the sort of postmortem on that was, how it was pieced together that, that in fact you got him. So, so I can't give you examples uh, you know, that, that I can't do just because that's, that's, that's going a, a, a bridge too far. But, but again, you know, let, you know, so let's, I'll give you kind of this scenario is we're, we're operating in Yemen and yeah. we're trying to go after the, the leadership of AQAP, Al Qaeda in the peninsula, which, which, uh, you know, uh, uh, for a while, you know, back several years ago, um, you know, was, was considered one of the most lethal terrorist groups because they had the Kind of the the ability to construct and and certainly the uh, the desire to 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 go after kind of the the global aviation industry. So we were really worried, as you can recall, about them putting bombs on airplanes. Um, and so you know, there's you know, it, it was it was it is public um, knowledge that that uh, that uh, the U.S. was uh, uh, along you know the U.S. military, I'll say, was conducting airstrikes in Yemen. Um, and uh, and so it's you know, simple. It's a, a very simple um, uh, example would be. Uh, the date I'm going to get wrong, but we were going after a guy by the name of Shehri. He was the name. He was the number two in AQAP. And and again, uh, there was you know there's multiple attempts that that had gone on earlier, and we were never sure. Um, uh, it turned out we were wrong. And then you know you find out when there's a leadership when there's an announcement by a group that there's, there's mm. a succession in leadership again. Um, and a lot of these operations, you know, it's it's a kinetic operation is conducted from the air. Uh, uh, or even if it's a ground operation, but at the end of the day, unless you have DNA, you're not going to, you're not going to get definitive proof. And, and so, uh, so you kind of, you just, you have to be patient, you get it right. And, uh, and you move forward. And then when, you know, when it comes to, and then, and then what you have to do is just, you know, you prepare for different scenarios, whether it's someone is alive or dead, 
Um, you know, there's, there's a, there'll be a big kind of analytic component. You can, you know, going back to King Jong-un, there's, there's a lot of smart people in the U.S. government, the British government, other places who are thinking about leadership succession. So what happens if the sister takes over? So you prepare yeah. for that, um, but you kind of wait for, uh, wait to see the, 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 the announcement uh, uh, you know, of itself. And again, that's, you know, that's the intelligence business. Um, I think, have- there, would you agree, Mark, one outlier in this, in this kind of um, paradigm is the Soleimani assassination yeah. because a it wasn't a non-state actor it was a state actor b this was a guy who in the last five six years was taking selfies all over the fucking battlefields of multiple civil wars and conflicts uh to which the united states was was a party uh c he felt himself invincible because no american president would ever authorize an airstrike or an assassination of somebody of his stature and then D, you know, the, 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 the reporting after he was taken out at Baghdad International Airport was that the agency and I guess um, sister intelligence uh, services had spies everywhere tracking his movements um, from guys working sham wings in Syria to obviously Iraqi assets on the ground who knew when he was landing, you know, who was on the, uh, the flight with him, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a case where I think, you know, because I recall that day I was in London and, and you know, you see that the chatter, it starts, of course, on social media, on Twitter, something's mm-hmm. just happened, rumors abound, Soleimani, uh, you know, uh, and Hadi Alamari were, were snuffed by the Americans and blah, blah, blah. But I remember texting a State Department official, did we get him? And getting a response within 30 seconds, it was just a smiley face, yeah. which was <laughs> me. And I mean, that that was lickety split, man. I mean, that was just, I mean, you're talking maybe an hour, maybe two from, you know, the airstrike to yeah. confirmation, right? Um, so how would that, I mean, like, you know, a guy a guy like Soleimani, who was, was sort of public enemy number one in Iran to the American intelligence community. And I know Petraeus used to bang on about how awful and evil he was. And there were all kinds of game plans and scenarios for taking him out you know, all over the place. I remember when they got Mugnia in Damascus and what was that? 2018 2008 joint CIA, uh, Mossad operation. Soleimani was like shown holding hands with Mugnia all over that town. Right. So it was, it was very easy to get him. Uh, walk me through like what the, the kind of the logistics were for tracking a guy like him again, oh. state actor. He's a general in the IRGC, a Quds force, um, but also a designated terrorist, according to the U.S. government. So right. it's, it's, yeah. So, so we might not be very good at handling a global pandemic. Right. But one thing the U.S. government has gotten really good at is manhunting. Uh, right. And, and, you know, and it, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it is a, it is a discipline. It's something where you use all source intelligence, um, you know, again, human, human sources on the ground, SIGINT, uh, you know, imagery. So, you know, whether it's the, you have your aerial surveillance, um, uh, and so we have just, you know, frankly, since, since nine 11, we perfected this, um, mm. you know, you think about the damage that we did in the FATA to, to kind of core Al Qaeda, yeah. uh, uh, to Al Qaeda on the peninsula, um, in, uh, in Yemen, what happens with our strikes in, uh, in Somalia. So, so just this, this, uh, this, the trade craft that is used is outstanding. So in the case of Ghassan Soleimani, and I've talked about it quite a bit, it's not a question of, you know, it, and, and, you know, how can I say this right? What a great operation, but it's not that remarkable because we do this so well. It's mm. more of the political decision to do this right. uh, to me was, was remark was remarkable. And so when I first heard about it, 
you know, my first reaction was like, God damn, you know, who finally made the decision to do that? Not that boy, you know, boy, that, you know, the, the boys were out there and they did a great job. We can do this. It's just a question of, should we do this? Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the case of Qasem Soleimani, uh, uh, Michael, you said exactly right. Of someone, a figure who, while he was considered one of these kind of intelligence masterminds, um, he was a, he was, you know, he was flaunting uh, his ability to travel kind of globally. He was acting even more so as a, as a diplomat. So not, not someone particularly difficult to get to. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and if you're, if you're talking about trying to conduct a military operation on the outskirts of BIOP, you know, the ISR stack there, the, the stack of U.S. aircraft is extraordinary on any day. So mm-hmm. not, again, not, not something hard to do. It's just a question of, you know, uh, of actually kind of pulling the trigger and a political decision to, to, to do this. And that to me is, um, was, uh, was huge, much more so than, than the actual, you know, uh, dynamics of the operation again. So, you know, it, clearly there was, there would have been, um, intelligence immediately, whether that's intercepts or, or DNA or, or, or whatever, um, confirming that, that he had been killed. But again, the, the decision to do this is something that's been debated a lot in the press. And to, to this day now, I've still not convinced it was, I, I'm, I'm convinced it was the right thing to do. I'm not convinced we did it in the right way because, you know, there's, there's different ways to conduct these strikes, whether it's a kind of an overt military strike or more of a covert strike. And I think kind of the, what, what the U.S. has done in the past and what the Israelis like to do can be far more effective as, you, you, you know, things can explode and you don't really have to brag about it. And I think that, uh, right. uh, that, that probably would have been uh, uh, the smarter way of, of, of going about things. And we're really not going to know in terms of, you know, the, the, and going one step further. Sorry, I'm talking a lot here, but, the reta- you know, we always were expecting the Iranian retaliation. Well, then yeah. they got hit by this COVID pandemic. Right. Um, then they had this disaster of shooting down an aircraft and kind of an internal fracture within their government security services. So I, I think it's going it, to, it's time will tell the, the, the price we may pay for an overt strike rather than something that was done much more uh, uh, kind of behind the scenes. Well, that, that, that was going to be my next question. I mean, were you, because I've been a bit surprised, obviously the Iranians play a very long game, right? I mean, the Burgess right. bombing um, took place, what, four years after Mugnia, and that was retaliation, direct retaliation for Mugnia's assassination. So, you know, so, so we're always looking over our shoulder, what are the Iranians going to do to get their own, you know, back for Soleimani? And I mean, you had that, that sort of, I don't want to call it symbolic because actually the reporting suggests it was a little more um, severe than, than it initially seemed, but the, the rocketing of U S air bases in Iraq as a kind of initial retaliation, but what's the kind of stuff that you're looking out for? I mean, assuming Iran can recover from the pandemic, which has hit them pretty hard. Like right. what do you expect the, the, the Quds force to be plotting or getting up to, in order to get hit back at America. Sure. Take- I think you're, you know, you're looking for soft targets. You know, we always worry about the reach of, you know, look, there's huge Shia communities uh, all over the globe, but we worry about, you know, Southeast Asia. We worry about um, Latin America, uh, Africa. Uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. there, the, the, there's plenty of soft targets, whether they be U.S. embassies, yeah, military installations. So, mm-hmm. so you know, I, I mean, that, that to me is clearly um, where, where they're going to be to, to look and whether it's, I, you know, the Quds Force, um, Iranian intelligence, regular MIS, or, or using kind of the Hezbollah as surrogates. You know, we always considered Hezbollah to be, you know, the A-team of terrorist uh, uh, groups, even even uh, uh, more so than, in terms of sophistication, more so than Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Well, they, they're, they're the ones who pioneered the Qasem. 
yeah, that's right. So there's there's plenty of reason to be uh, uh, to be concerned, you know. Let alone that this was this was you know. And again, I I it's I, I want to be kind of caveat. I, I this is this is a really bad individual who he took off the battlefield. Um, but it also you know, and so he was a the leader of a terrorist organization. He also was a government official. So that also that that in turn would expose our officials, um, right? Future Iranian retaliation. So I think look the 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 story that you know the the end of this is going to be written um, long after, perhaps even a Trump presidency, but it's certainly something that is uh, that will be of, uh, of concern. And, and it's been put a bit on the back burner because of, I think, how the Iranians have to deal internally with uh, with the COVID um, mm-hmm. uh, issue. And, and again, and again, their shoot down the Ukrainian airliner was, you know, I think that that took a lot of wind out of their sails in terms of, uh, you know, planning. Um, yeah. But they're, they're, again, they're going to play the long game. There's no doubt exactly what you said. Do you think morally it's right for something like the, the CIA, American intelligence, to kill somebody else's general? So, you know, I, I look at it in terms of his role as the leader of a terrorist organization. And I've, I've you know, truth be told, you know, I've followed him for a long time. Um, I have no moral problems at all on that. But uh, but of course, you know, that this, this is um, I also, uh, you know, my tribe at the, at the agency was involved probably in every, you know, um, uh, covert action program in the last 20 years. And so, so I've had plenty of experience, um, with this that I can't really talk about, but just in terms of how I sleep, you know, at night, it's just fine because this was a really, really nasty individual who, who not only caused the deaths of, uh, numerous Americans overseas, but also, um, so many others in, uh, uh, in the region as well. You know, his role in the Syrian civil war, um, uh, you could, you can certainly attribute, uh, uh, numerous civilian deaths. Um, and so I'm, I'm okay with that, but you know, that's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a valid question. Um, but, but I, I consider him not, not a member not, you know, not, a, not necessarily just a high ranking, uh, general, but really the head of a terrorist organization. Mark, I want to ask you about Syria because, um, you know, you're an old middle East hand and, and you were in the agency when this thing kicked off and you've been in the agency as the various permutations of U.S. policy with respect to Syria have gone on. And you wrote a very interesting piece. Um, what was the website? Was it Just Security? Um, um, about kind of a the inherent contradictions, for lack of a better term, in, in the U.S. approach to Syria. Uh, and I want you to talk a little bit about this because, you know, when when Trump took the decision to allow Erdogan to invade northeast Syria, um, People like me, people like you, people who have studied the conflict for a while, um, we had a slightly different take from, let us say, the you know the Chirons on on twenty four seven cable news channels. You know, Trump betrays the Kurds was was the you know the the, the big theme that was being sold. And yeah, sure, there, there's an element of truth to that, but it's a little more complicated than than that, right? I mean, uh, talk talk to me a little bit about sort of America's relationship with Turkey, Turkey. Right you know, almost monomaniacal national security obsession and who the, the Kurds, as we like to put oh, it in, right. are. So, well, first and foremost, I, I could talk Syria all day. It was, it's always been my favorite country um, yeah. uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, without getting into too much detail, I've, I've certainly been there uh, many times. Um, and uh, uh, I found it uh, a country which, you know, there was so much, so many contradictions, mainly that it was, you know, clearly one of our, our adversaries, as well as, as one of Israel's chief adversaries, but in general, um, a, a country with an incredibly smart, well-educated, and frankly, quite secular population. 
Um, I love the Syrians that I met. You know, one of the amazing statistics is that while the population of Syria was 20 million at the time when I was going there quite a bit, um, there, was, there were 1 million Syrian Americans, uh, uh, you know, living in, in, in the United States. That means everybody had a relative. Mm-hmm. And, of course, and every doctor in Syria went to medical school, you know, in the United States. So it, it's a, it, when I say it was a pro-American country, it kind of was in the sense that I would, you know, we would get visa requests. And someone would, and, and of course, you have to ask questions. So why do you want to come to the United States? Well, America is a land of opportunity. And then you ask, well, do you support terrorist organizations? Yeah, Hezbollah is my, is, is you know, is the, is the dream organization. You're like, you can't say that. <laughs> You're not getting a visa. But, but it, was a, it was a really interesting country, which, um, you know, uh, and ruled by the, by the uh, uh, you know, obviously the, the Assad regime. And that's a whole uh, other issue that I've written quite a bit about Syria. And one of the things I always talked about was that, you know, Bashar is never going to give up his power, you know, from the, from the deathbed when Hafez al-Assad was, uh, you know, was dying. So, so the idea that Bashar is this Western educated, you know, ophthalmologist with, you know, um, his, uh, you know, with, with his 10 months he spent in the UK and with, uh, uh, with his, uh, with his, uh, with his kind of British uh, uh, wife, um, you know, I, the the I think that's a fallacy because he truly is never going to give up the throne. I argued that within the intelligence community very unsuccessfully, and and you saw there was even some a, a good article today that that Putin is getting irritated with Assad because he's not being um, reasonable. You know, he's, he's not he's not trying you know doing enough or bending enough to try to negotiate a solution. So that's all BS in my part. But going to the other question, Michael, I apologize. So you know the the the, the most interesting part about the United States relationship and the counter ISIS campaign is that. That we partnered with, in essence, a terrorist group, the PKK, which, of course, are, when I say you're familiar with, it's, I'm not saying you're yep. a member of it, but anyway, you're quite familiar with. And so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of rebranded. Um, uh, but, but in essence, you know, uh, for, for kind of a short term solution, um, we, we partnered with the PKK and this drove the Turks bananas, as it should, because, um, uh, uh, you know, th- this is this is a, a an insurgency that was going on in Turkey that's killed scores of, of of Turkish soldiers and civilians. So when Erdogan kind of does his thing and manipulates Trump into kind of making these rash decisions, you know, at, at the core, I don't like the idea of us the, the, uh, of us the abandoning our Kurdish allies, our Syrian Kurdish allies in the fight. And these are again, this is a PKK. It's a terrorist group, a short term alliance. Um, but let's make no mistake at the, that in essence, the Turks have this kind they're, they're when they say they're, they're, this is painfully, listen to my last name is Polymeropoulos, what I'm going to say, but the Turks <laughs> are fundamentally, they're fundamentally right here is that um, this is not a, a you know, a, a legitimate long-term alliance. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the outrage was in my mind, it was, it, it's, 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 it's correct in the sense that you're, you're, you're leaving your battlefield foe, but this was going to happen. Um, right. We were going to have to disassociate ourselves with with the PKK um, uh, in the fight in the, in the counter missile fight because that's because Turkey is you know is a member of NATO it's a seventy year alliance like we can't sacrifice that. But there's, um, there's, now, there's by the way all my Greek friends who are listening to this will never speak to me again. <laughs> there, but there's so much there's so much I mean frankly the thing that upsets me the most about the way Syria gets covered particularly now in the in the U.S. press anyway um, it's this sort of reflexive. You know, everything must be filtered through a reflexive hatred of Donald Trump. So if Trump does X, Y must be right. And, you know, part and parcel with that is this uh, sanitization or whitewashing of the history and reputation of the PKK. Actually, even worse than that, a denial, um, particularly by CENTCOM 
by okay. people like Brett McGurk, who was right. the, the envoy to, to the anti-ISIS campaign, that the so-called Syrian Democratic Forces are not the PKK, but are actually this multi-ethnic that's hodgepodge. That's bullshit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I, I call it, it's like the Linda Richmond approach to, to the Syria file. You know, the Syrian Democratic Forces, not Syrian, not Democratic right, right, right. Forces. But like, you know, tell me a little bit about General Masloom, because this guy's all over the U.S. press. So he was the head of urban terrorist operations for the PKK. He's a, he, there is so much blood on his hands. Yet we have decided, and again, I'm okay with it for this short term, it would have been a short term alliance because they're a very effective fighting force. But make no mistake, Turkey should be annoyed with this. You know, I have, you know, and, and, and again, it's uh, uh, the, you know, the, the U.S. military did. It's not that they were blinded by it, because I understand their, their, their point of view is that these were our most effective partners in the counter Issel coalition. Um, but again, you can't take it too far. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and there, there was going to have to be kind of a, a break on this. Um, but, but it's all narrative driven, right? You can, you can argue, yeah, look, the PKK, I mean, they've got blood on their hands. They're a, a, a grisly terrorist organization and insurgency that's killed scores of Turks. But our priority, meaning the United States of America's priority, is to fuck up ISIS. And these right. guys are the best at doing that. So we have to partner with them. You, you can have it both ways. You can speak the truth about history right. Right. Uh, without, w- without sort of laundering it through this kind of rosy prism or narrative that says, oh, no, these guys are the only real secular democratic experiment in the Middle East. And, you know, shame on us for forsaking them or shame yeah. on us yeah. for partnering with Erdogan against them. So, I, so I, want to, I want to cut in here yeah, a bit because I, 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 a while back, 91, um, I went to northern Iraq and um, I saw what um, Saddam was doing to the Kurds, and that was right. bad, but also what the Turkish state was doing to the Kurds in the far east of Turkey was pretty brutal right. too. And I don't think that Erdogan, I mean, yes, Turkey is a member of NATO, but I don't think it's been a particularly observant member of NATO. And I feel that the Kurds uh, um, were our, uh, and still are, our allies against Islamic State. And I thought um, when Trump kind of sided with Turkey against the Kurds, I thought that was a betrayal of, of our gallant proxy fighters, the Kurds. And I felt ashamed. I'm... I'm I'm putting that out there. Am I wrong? Am I, 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 you, I, actually did too. I actually wrote a couple of pieces on this and I talked to the press quite a bit about it because I look back in my career, um, uh, whether it's, whether it's, you know, and so, so uh, just uh, to put some background, I actually, there's a difference of course between the Syrian Kurds and the Iraqi Kurds, but, but, you know, uh, in, in the 2000 and boy, when was this? 2000, late 2002, I went up to live with the Kurds up in Northern Iraq um, as we're prepping for the kind of the, the, the war with Iraq. Um, uh, and so, so I spent, uh, uh, time up with, uh, with the PUK and, you know, um, I, I remember having, you know, very kind of frank discussions with our PUK interlocutors and it was fascinating because the P, it's, it's such a, the, you know, it's, it's the, the, you could do a whole program on the Kurds, but the Kurds have been allies with or betrayed by everybody. And so, you know, yeah. am I kind of trying to be my slick, you know, typical, you know, uh, uh, operations officer fashion, I was giving all sorts of assurances about American support and, and, you know, we're with you in this fight. And a senior Kurdish leader just stopped me and said, just stop. 
he said, stop. Like uh, we've worked with the Israelis, the Iranians, the Iraqis, the Americans, all. So, you know, so they were, they were pretty cognizant of just kind of short term, uh, 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 kind of their own short term interests. Um, and they've been betrayed by all four. But by, by all four. So, so, you know, but I, I always remember that conversation because then when I did all of my time in Afghanistan working with kind of our indigenous partners in the fight against the Taliban and then moving forward with, with the partnership with the Syrian Kurds, there is something to be said with America's reputation taking a hit with yeah. a precipitous move by Trump. And so the problem I had with Donald, you know, first of all, Erdogan plays Trump like a fiddle. So Trump announces this kind of immediate withdrawal from, from Syria. But what we really needed was, again, in, an, in, a, in a tactical alliance that we had with the Syrian Kurds, with the PKK, let's just be, be honest, um, uh, what you needed to just is, is to have kind of, uh, you know, very frank discussions with them saying that we are going to kind of, um, uh, you know, pull that feeding tube. You know, we, we are going we to go away. The training wheels are going to come off. And this is, this is going to be kind of a very short-term partnership. Um, and there's ways to do that kind of gradually over time, other than this, what, what really felt like a betrayal. And, and I know my, you know, my friends in JSOC were very upset um, uh, about that. And, you know, so, so there, there will be a future conflict, you know, where we have to go in and find kind of, uh, uh, you know, local partners. And everyone's going to remember, you know, the, the, the reputation of the United States, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a reliable partner, I think, took a hit um, with that, even with those contradictions, Michael, that we were talking about. Between, yeah, you know, no, of course. And, and you know, by the way, I mean, th th my big problem is this catch-all phrase, the Kurds. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, no one goes around saying the Jews. No one goes around saying the Sunnis or the Shia. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's Orientalist and it's condescending. And you, I mean, you alluded to the PUK, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. That's a party that's been at, at odds with the, the more uh, politically active or, or powerful party in Iraq, the KDP. The Kurdistan right. Democratic Party, right? I mean, so like, oh. you know, there is no monolithic entity called the Kurds. Not, this right. is a multifarious, um, you know, politically dynamic and diverse constituency. And yeah, I mean, when they're faced with an existential threat such as ISIS, there is a tendency to rally around tribe. But I mean, Mark, I don't have to tell you, you know, um, when ISIS rolled into Sinjar. The KDP basically fucked the pooch and told everybody that they needed to disarm. And it was the PKK that came in and actually fought ISIS and, and booted them out of, of Sinjar. But, you know, this is, again, this is what I don't like about the way that the, particularly the American press covers these faraway conflicts. There's no attempt to get at the nuance or the complexities of what's actually taking place. It's this kind of monotone presentation, good, bad, ally, enemy, and, you know, never the twain shall meet. And, and as you just pointed out, and as we've been discussing, it's, it's way more complicated than that. Let me throw um, one, more, one more thing in. So, so at the, and, and just kind of to, to put it in perspective, at the end of my, so I did the Middle East for 24 of my 26 years. The last two years, I was, I was uh, uh, first the deputy and then the acting chief in, in charge of clandestine operations from, you know, in, in Europe and Eurasia, which means from, you know, from Dublin to Baku. Um, which included, of course, Turkey. And so one of the one of the things that we worried about uh, uh, was the following: is that as our as our JSOC partners and the intelligence community was partnering with, in essence, the PKK on the ground in the counter ISIL fight, we also have had a long-standing and robust program to help the government of Turkey, both the Turkish military and the intelligence services, track and target the PKK leadership. That is an incredible 
you know, uh, uh, contradiction where we have our, and, and, and we really worried about our, the force protection of our people on the ground um, because, you know, our folks are working with the PKK yet, yet and they know yet we also have another program to help target their leadership. And so, this, this is, you know, this it, it drove me nuts. Um, uh, and, it, you know, and, and we, we could never it was always at an impasse. Basically, the, the, the message from our political masters was just deal with this. Um, and, uh, and, and it, I mean, wasn't it, it, it didn't get to the point where you'd have like U S special forces roll into a town in Northeast Syria and the PKK would, would put on their, their Syrian democratic forces insignias while the American troops were there. The minute the American troops left, they would take off those yeah. insignias and slap back yeah. on the PKK. Yeah. So, so again, really complicated. Um, and, and messy and you're right. It's, 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 you know, it's, there's, there's no really simplistic, um, uh, you know, uh, a way to kind of describe this situation. Um, and so, you know, I just want to ask a couple of questions about, uh, two of my favorite despots, Vladimir Putin and, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Ah. Are they in trouble because of the, um, the collapse in the price of oil? I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, uh, well, I, let me, let me start more with, uh, uh, MBS. And so, you know, again, this is, this is, uh, I haven't, I haven't followed Saudi Arabia for a long time and I'm not a, just to, to be honest, it's, a. um, I think that, that what rattled us a lot. And I was in, again, in, in, at the agency at the time, you know, the, the, the death of Khashoggi, um, or the murder of Khashoggi was something that, that kind of was, uh, was pr- pretty jarring. Because this is not something that you know one of our kind of key reliable allies, our, arguably one of our, our most key uh, reliable ally in, in the in the Middle East. Um, it's something that, that that that's been done in the past. So um, you know, uh, uh, MBS is kind of an interesting character in that that you know there's all stories about about him as a reformer. I have friends who go back to Saudi Arabia, go back and forth all the time. They say things are changing there. Um, you know, the, the, the streets feel different. There is a there's more of a feeling for for reform yet. Um, uh, you know, there are, I think there is, there's a lot of worry also that he has some serious, you know, uh, you know, autocratic tendencies. Um, and again, the, the, you know, ordering the killing, at least in our view, the agency's assessment of a, of a U.S. journalist was, uh, was, was pretty jarring. Um, in terms of, you know, in terms of the, the effect on the Saudi uh, economy, they'll, they'll muddle through this. They always do. Um, and, uh, and, and they, again, they, they also have a huge partner in, in the White House. Um, you know, make no mistake that relationship between the United States and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia and the, the leadership circles is, is pretty extraordinary. You know, Jared Kushner is a, is, has been, you know, quite a friend of, uh, of MBS. Um, when it gets to, when it gets to, to, to Putin, um, you know, again, this is, you know, we're not talking about a democratic country. This is a survivor and the Russian economy is, is, is been in, been in trouble in the past, um, whether, uh, uh from sanctions and, and, you know, they're going to muddle through, uh, uh, as well now. Um, I think there's, you know, there's, there's not much of a sense of accountability in, uh, in Russia. So it's, it, you know, there's certainly no threat to his rule or his control in any sense. Um, so, you know, the economy might, may, may take a hit, but, um, uh, you know, they'll, uh, uh, they, they will survive. He will survive as, the, you know, the country is so just, you know, famously corrupt um, that it's not going to be a threat on his rule. Uh, there might be some pain for the Russian people, but I don't see, see any kind of threat to Putin uh, in any sense. Down the track, who wins, um, which isn't wins, populism 
or um, internationalism, um, enlightened globalism? What do you think? Well, so, I mean, unfortunately, it's you know, uh, globalism is, is globalism somehow is 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 a is a is a is a word you can't use in the United States anymore, which I find incredible. Um, it's certainly not international. Like you know, so populism, is, you know, uh, to me, unfortunately, because I, I equate that with kind of really dark um, times of, of you know of, in Europe. Um, but that seems to be the norm, you know. So the, the last two years of my time, um, again, as I, as I, you know, was was spent certainly worrying about Turkey, but really the majority of my time was was uh, involved kind of pushing back on um, on Russia and kind of this kind of Russian expansionist, um, uh, you know, effort using active measures and and taking advantage of kind of this populist sentiment, certainly in Europe, obviously in the United States as well. Um, but, but to me, populism can, can equate with, you know, with fascism, with kind of this dark moves to the right and, the, the you know, and, and, you know, and, and Putin was, uh, uh, was a champion of it and, uh, and will continue, um, to be that way. And that, that is, that was enormously, uh, uh, worrisome for us, um, because you're playing, you know, it's, it's going to, I won't even call it soccer. You say football, it's as a football analogy, you know, you're, 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 you're the goalkeeper. And and you know you might be able to stop a couple coming through, but but some are not. Um, What's the um, Mark? The, I mean, you know, I, I've heard all these briefings. You know, CIA assesses that if Putin were to uh, relinquish power or be overthrown, um, much darker forces would come to the fore in Russia. You know, you're looking at ultra nationalists of the Dugin Zhirinovsky kidney. Um, is that still like, I mean, as far as you know, you left the agency almost a year ago. Yeah. Is that still the kind of conventional wisdom that, look, Putin's a son of a bitch, but um, after him, you know, something much, much worse could 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 sweep to power and then America would really be threatened? I, 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 honestly, I don't know. Mm. Uh, you know, that that's more kind of for if on, on the analytic side. And I was never, never part of that necessarily. I mean, it was, you know, my... Um, uh, I, and, and, and to, and to be honest, and, and so, so, you know, clearly there's, there's going to be folks who look at kind of succession in, uh, uh in Russia, although, um, I think that's a bit far-fetched right now. Uh, uh, and, and, and cause his, his hold on power always seemed pretty kind of pretty strong and resolute, but, but I, what I, what I'm going to, what I'm going to say now is it's just based on personal observation and, and perhaps, you know, uh, Michael and John, you can comment too. It was just about the Russian people. Mm. You know, I was always fascinated by this because, you know, on, on visits to to Moscow, you know, the, uh, Russians always wanted to engage with us, with an American official. They were fascinated. Um, they were fascinated why America hated them. Uh, uh, yet they also, the Russians also, especially the Russian officials we dealt with, you know, were incredibly xenophobic. Um, so, you know, I, I could never put my, you know, my finger exactly on what we were dealing with. Um a lot of, you know, yet, yet as they would, they would talk to us on the street, they wouldn't, we weren't worried about that, the, that the SVR or the FSB would come snatch up, you know, after them. So they weren't terrified of this, this kind of uh, uh, intelligence apparatus. So they, they felt somewhat free, but uh, to talk, but it was just, it, it was, I, I could never get, get a feel of, of kind of what Russia really was because, you know, you go to Moscow and St. Petersburg, these are extraordinary cosmopolitan capitals. Yeah. Uh, yet, yet the the people to me were incredibly xenophobic. Uh, they didn't like the corruption that that Putin, of course, uh, 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 you know, uh, kind of demonstrates in droves. But if you talk to people old enough to remember the days of the collapse of the Soviet Union, where there was lawlessness on the streets, they certainly don't want to return to that either. 
Um, and and, and it, those days were pretty extraordinary for my friends who were there and serving there. Um, yeah. So you know, it's it's a it's a it really it's a, Russia to me was a kind of fascinating end of my career. Nothing that I'd ever done before. Um, uh, but uh, not only not in terms of the operational pushback against the against the Russians, but I always thought I knew the Arab people, but I never thought I really got a feel of what kind of what the Russians were really like. Uh, yeah, and you know, no, nobody wants to um, to oversimplify or to, right. uh, as the kids in academia say, essentialize one people or country. But I think you know the historian Ronald Hingley had a line um, that you know the, the kind of a, a almost stereotypical Russian mindset is one that's an inferiority complex wrapped up in a superiority complex. Yeah. So we think we think we are the greatest nation on earth and the greatest people on earth. And we resent the fact that none of you also agree with us. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, Mark, do you think that um, this is um, a question I asked um, our last guest, uh, Tom Nichols, who's a, an expert on, on nukes. Do you think we've spent too much money on, for example, the CIA and 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 Britain, the MI6, etc., on counter um, uh, counterterrorism, and not enough on pandemics. So, so I've been thinking a lot about this, and so, you know, and and this is not just to you know to talk about um, uh, you know in, in the media, but it's also kind of it's a it's a kind of it's a it's a self reflection on my career. So, so think about every you know. So I served for twenty six years and. Um, you know, I spent almost three years away from my family, you know, kind of doing post 9-11 stuff in really shitty places. Um, uh, we spent, the U.S. government spent trillions of dollars. Um, yet what was the, what's the number of Americans actually killed by terrorist attacks, uh, uh, you know, in this time period? Probably 4,000, maybe. Mm. Um, we have 54, 55,000 Americans killed by this pandemic. So it is, it is a very kind of, I think it's a, it's a very smart and rational and, and normal response to kind of question, you know, have, you know, you know, have we gotten this a little bit wrong? You know, the, the, the U S aircraft carrier is effectively rendered inoperable by this pandemic. Um, uh, and, and in a time where, our, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, budget, you know, there's been, you know, in, the, in our public health sector, there's budget cuts and, and certainly things were not funded as they should be. So I think, you know, the answer to your question is, you know, it's, that's a fair question to ask. And, and I think that people are going to define national security a bit differently um, uh, uh, in the future. To be fair, there there was planning done. There there are these discussions, um, and you know, and, and and if you see kind of this postmortem about about you know uh, what was what was being done at the National Security Council um, and others in talking about this uh, 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 this issue, I mean, I, I think that um, you know, again, this is not an intelligence failure in planning for this. It's a, it's a policy failure, our response, but it's also you know, uh, I think, a, a, you know, when we when we think about future resource allocation, um, we're going to have to think a little bit differently uh, uh, based on how, uh, you know, because because, again, uh, you know, Ahmad Mugnia, Ghassim Soleimani and Osama bin Laden did not kill 55,000 Americans and cripple our economy and send us into near depression. So it's, it's worth thinking about that. Yeah. Do you do you miss um, what do you miss about the CIA? Not for, so I, I miss it's it's you know the I boy there's a, there's a lot to say in this because 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 uh, uh, not to get kind of too hokey but you know the the, the CIA for me was it's 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 not a nine to five job it was a calling so you know so you're on you're on a you're on a two or three year assignment overseas and you're out you know I I didn't work during the day 
I had my kind of fake job during the day. So you're where you're out every single night, whether you're meeting an agent on the streets, whether you're, you're going through the recruitment cycle, spotting, assessing, trying to develop sources, whether you're providing counter surveillance for another one of your colleagues. Um, so it really is all encompassing and you're with, you know, your brothers and sisters doing that. And so I certainly miss the, you know, that kind of, uh, that kind of, uh, uh the, the camaraderie that we had where, you know, you do feel special and, 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 you know, I, when I, especially as I, as I, you know, I made the, I was promoted to the senior intelligence service by the end of my career. So that's, you know, a uh, kind of general officer category. So I had thousands of people working for me and I, I would speak to a lot of new officers and I would always say, you know, look, if you can't get excited about this job, you know, you're in the wrong line of work. So, so, you know, uh, you, you feel like you're, you're, you know, you're helping watch and, uh, and make history. And I'll just tell you, you know, uh, just a, a quick story that kind of encapsulated the way I felt about the organization. And trust me, I wasn't happy every day there. And either were shitty managers and stupid bosses and, and bad decisions. And, you know, that, that's normal. But, but I'll tell you, so when I was in Afghanistan, I was a, I was a base chief in Eastern Afghanistan um, between 2011 and 2012. And, and this was on the very, I'm sorry. I was going to say Jalalabad. Uh, no, it wasn't Jalalabad. It, was, it was a place called Shkin. So it's in Pektika right. province. It is way, it is, it, we are on the border looking into South Waziristan. We're closer to Wana than anywhere else. And, uh, okay. and you know, Time Magazine called it the most, the most dangerous place on the planet. So we were rocketed every day. We had firefights with everything from Al-Qaeda to the Taliban to the PAC military. And that's a whole other story. But, but what happened when I was out there, um, uh, uh, my mother passed away. My mother lived back in the States. And, and I remember, and, and we're, there were, we were trying to get me home um, for the funeral. And, and this entailed multiple helicopter flights and then kind of fixed wing, obviously to get to Kabul, to get me on a, on a, on a kind of a, uh, transport back home. But I remember trying to get out of, you know, you know, kind of, uh, uh Eastern Afghanistan and the, the, the weather was crappy and, um, we took off one of our helicopters and we have, we have, you know, we have all these veterans of the special operations community where everyone has a kind of a Southern accent, a Southern drawl. And, you know, I remember Tom Wolf's the right stuff talked about this, that, you know, you have a lot of confidence in these guys and we were socked in with weather and we're hovering in this in, in between this mountain pass. And I, I'm on comms. I'm like, just guys turn around. And they refused to. And then we finally made it to another base where I'd finally get home. And I, I asked the pilots, I said, you know, what are you guys doing? And, you know, and they said, look, boss, you know, I was the base chief said, look, boss, you know, we know your mom died and, and we were getting you home no matter what. And so, you know, that's what I miss about the organization, that kind of camaraderie and that dedication. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's it, look, every place has its warts. Um, but, but, uh, you know, it, it really was a, was a, was a family because it's certainly a unique line of work. What Mark, what representation in popular culture or literature would you say best captures the ethos and spirit and even just the kind of day-to-day living style of, um, the CIA? Sure. That, that's hard to do because there's nothing, you know, I mean, it's certainly not Homeland. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I stopped watching that, although although the, the you know the cast did it, has made appearances at the agency before. Um, I'm sure, yeah. But but you know the I think um, the the there's one book that I always gave. There's a couple books that I would I would give to young officers. Um, uh, but one was by by you know the Washington Post columnist David Ignatius. He wrote a book, Agents of Innocence, which which, which is about it's about Beirut. It's about a young CIA officer. It is very much based on the truth, frankly, although he probably wouldn't admit it. Um, but it's a but it's about a, a CIA operations officer in uh, in Lebanon. Um, mm-hmm. in the, a novel, is it? Sorry, is this a novel? It's yeah. a novel. Yeah, so yeah. it's a novel that was published quite a while ago called Agents of Innocence. But it's probably the best kind of 
feeling of what a, what a, what a case officer and operations officer uh, uh, is, uh, you know, you know, deals with on a day to day basis. But, you know, in terms of the camaraderie, it's, it's hard to say, you know, there's it's, it's you know, popular culture just can't really um, uh, uh, mimic this. I, you know, there's uh, if you if you if you uh, uh, a lot of times, you know, we, we serve in these small units overseas. So if you want to you know, if if you look at kind of you know any, any kind of movie about the about the U.S. military that dealt with kind of that brotherhood or sisterhood, that would probably be um, some some reflection of it. But you know, really, it's a it's a it's a, a unique place. I'll I'll tell you one other story if we have time. That when, when you know you talked about some of those the fancy hardware that I received, and frankly, I, I failed much more often in my career, and I learned a lot more from that uh, than than ever than ever succeeding. But um, you know, George Tennant was uh, was the director of the agency, and and I, I'd come back from Iraq, and I was receiving one of those one of those intelligence medals. And my father, who's a college professor, and and you know, he's Greek, and so he's true Greek, and not a, not a huge fan of the organization because he remembered the agency's role, you know, yeah. supporting the Greek junta in the seventies. Um, but he, uh, so my father was at the ceremony, and and I told Director Tennant, who I got to know very well because of our kind of common ethnic background, that my dad was coming. So he took my dad aside for fifteen minutes and spoke in Greek to him. Wow. My dad came back and he was in tears and I, you know, and they wouldn't tell me what, what really happened. But, um, uh, you know, years later, tenant, when I asked him again, I said, what did you tell my dad that one time? And he said, he said, I told him you were a hero in Iraq. Um, and, and it was, you know, so, so again, it's, it's an organization that took the time kind of to do these things, uh, which, uh, which really impressed me. And so, you know, it's, a these are, these are the things that I'll definitely miss. And it's a small place. So, you know, everybody. Um, mm. you no, know, so, so, you know, the, the, it's, it's, it's rare that I will, you know, I mean, there, you know, there's, there's sort there, there's officers who have come and served there for, for, you know, one, two, three, four, five years, whatever. But, but generally, if you, you know, if you, if it's, if you say that, tell me a name of a 20 year CIA veteran in my generation, you know, I will have, will have known them. And so I'll have known them. So pretty unique place. So Mark, I, I, um, I want to keep you for two more questions from sure. me, um, because, you, um, you're, um, a wonderful listen. Um, so there are there are people um, on the people like Jeremy Corbyn and on the left in Britain, and I'm not a Corbynite for a second, but um, who are worried about the CIA for what it did in the seventies, Allende right. in Chile, and all of that. What would you say to them? So, so you know this, and and I. One of the things I do now is I actually I, go, I talk to a lot of college students all all over the United States because you know in terms of just people who are interested in in, in joining the agency, someone will call me or a, or a local university will say, "Can you come talk to us?" It's totally unofficial, so it's easy. What you say is you know you admit that this, these you know that first of all this is that's, the CIA has evolved very much as an organization. There were things we did in the past that uh, that that some would would consider to be unsavory. Um, don't, you know, I, you don't, don't deny it happened because it, it certainly did. Um, you know, you can talk about the, and, and what I talk about is in just, just generally, you know, my career. So my career has been one where we have very robust congressional oversight. And so, and so really, um, when you talk about, uh, you know, the CIA of the 1970s is far different than the CIA of, of 2010 or 2020. Uh, and so, you know, it just, that's it, it, just, it's just, it's, it's a, it's an organization that has evolved. And then the final point that I make all the time is that the CIA is not a rogue organization. So, so the CIA's activities that people object to were, were and these, these were generally covert actions, and, and covert action is something that is directed and comes from the executive branch level, from the president of the United States. 
So we're carrying out U.S. policy. So you might not like some of the things the CIA did, but then, then you know, you might not also like some of the things that that you know President Nixon was was, was about, or or others who directed us to do this. Um, so it's you know, it's it's my my answer again is is honest, it's truthful, and and we're talking about something that happened you know many many decades ago. And and if you think that a country cannot you know operate with an intelligence service, I mean, it really is the nation's first line of defense. You're crazy. And so, uh, so, you know, that's, that's, uh, 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 it's, it's a pretty straightforward answer. It seems to resonate. I, I don't see a lot of, you know, sure. uh, last me. to worry about, you know, what happened in Chile. Yeah. Now, last question from me, obviously you said that Homeland isn't right about, um, isn't <laughs> a good description of the CIA, but, um, but, uh, James Bond, that's a factually accurate. Yes, of course. MI6. You know, Daniel Craig came to the uh, came to our headquarters. Um, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, and it was a huge hit. And he joked that he actually hadn't even been to MI6 headquarters yet. Um, <laughs> no, uh, you know, uh, uh, no, these are these are wonderful escapist films. Um, you know, but but you know, look, there's there's a lot of you know, like look, you know, John Le Carre is the is the dean of of, of you know kind of the espionage thriller, and so. There's 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 plenty of you know the Lacare's books are fantastic Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy I think net, there was a there was a recent um, series done yet again on 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 some of Lacare's stuff The Little Drummer Girl I love because it's the Middle East mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah but James Bond is just escapist fun but Daniel Craig did come to our headquarters and, and I, I will say I'm going to get in trouble for saying this but I think the uh, you know in our in our auditorium the the male to female ratio was probably uh, about nine to one female to male. <laughs> How did he, what What's did he say? funny about that is, is in the Bond novels and the films, the CIA is embodied by Felix Leiter, yeah, who yeah. kind of just this sort of, you know, mediocre, doesn't really do anything. He just, he, 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 he lends an assist to James yeah. and to M 6 all of long day. So it's, it's kind of, you know, that he would come to CIA headquarters to, to learn the, the tricks of the trade. It's, it's almost, it's that, that sort of British, you know, wrinkled nostril condescension about what the Yanks get up to. Oh, and, and that's a whole other, you know, the, 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 our relationship with the British security services um, is, is always kind of, uh, it, it's so much fun to play with uh, uh, because of that. And, and, and in fact, of the matter is we had an outstanding relationship. I've worked with, you know, um, uh, both MI6 and MI5 for, for years, but MI6 in particular. And uh, yeah, of course, you know, there is, you know, look, the, and MI, you know, the, the, what is it? The stereotype of an MI6 officer is, is a little bit more, you know, well-educated and, uh, you know, with a fancier suit and a fancier watch. Um, but, but, uh, uh, really I, I, I think of no other service, um, where we have such a, uh, an incredibly tight, you know, uh, relationship, not only sharing analytic products, but also sharing tradecraft, um, and kind of, uh, you know, really an extension of each other. And, um, but make no mistake that, you know, the, 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 you know, my, my British friends were always, would always tell me how, uh, you know, they were, they had a relationship with the FBI before the CIA even existed. So it's always out there. <laughs> Good. Right. Um, I think we should um, uh, draw this to a close. You've been listening to Michael Weiss in, um, uh, Michael Weiss in New York. So I can never pronounce his name correctly. Dear friend as he is. You can't uh, Mark... pronounce Weiss correctly, but you got Polymeropolis spot on. <laughs> <the first time. laughs> Indeed I do. Indeed, I did. And thank you, Mark. Um, That's been completely fascinating. You've been listening to The Last Call. Enjoy and take care.